You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bible with me to our scripture reading this morning. 1 Kings chapter 21. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed, sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king and take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up! and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So, you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger 
and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. Like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This morning we are continuing with our series on the Gospel according to Mark, and we've come to chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, the story of a king with jello legs and a wife with an iron fist is nothing new in the Bible. A few moments ago, we read from 1 Kings 21, and there we encountered Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was an Israelite, but he had married outside the church, taking a Sidonian wife. 
At Jezebel's urging, Ahab built a temple for Baal in Samaria, built an Asherah pole, and supported 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Jezebel was a wicked woman. And to this day, her name is synonymous with sin incarnate. No one with any sense would ever name their daughter Jezebel. And if idolatry and hatred for the true God were not enough, in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, Jezebel adds false witness, theft, and murder to her resume. Ahab cannot and does not want to stand up to her, and it costs an innocent man his life. But then the prophet of God comes along. The Lord sends Elijah to the palace in Samaria to confront this great wickedness, to literally lay down the law. Now this story reverberates into the New Testament where we find another king and his wife. We find Herod and Herodias. And again, we find great wickedness. And again, we find a prophet from God sent to confront the evil. However, unlike with Elijah, this prophet has a price to pay, a steeper price to pay for his courage. Often Elijah was a hunted man. The words of Psalm 129, which we sang at the beginning of our worship service, those could be his words. But he escaped with his life. And he was taken up by God directly into heaven. Not so with the prophet in our passage. He ends up losing his head. Mark places this story here partly to remind us that when the Lord Jesus sends out His disciples with a prophetic task, which happened in the the verses preceding, they have to realize that there are forces out there which hate them. Again, in the words of Psalm 129, there are those who hate Zion, who hate the church of God, who hate its prophets, and who want nothing more than for those prophets to be silenced. In our text, we see what inevitably happens to the prophets of God. That's our theme this morning as I preach to you God's Word from Mark 6. And as we look at our text, I want to begin with verse 17, because this is really where the story begins. We're going to begin with verse 17, and then we'll go through to verse 29, and then we're going to come back and then deal with verses 14 to 16. Again, verse 17 is really where the, the first events in this story take place, and so we'll, we'll deal with them in chronological order. Deal with that first. Now, Herod is mentioned here, and we need to be clear on who he is. You may remember that there was a Herod who tried to put Jesus to death when he was a toddler. When the Magi came from Persia, They told Herod that they were seeking the king of the Jews. Herod believed Jesus to be a threat. And he had all the boys of Bethlehem who were two years old and under, he had them all put to death. Jesus and his family narrowly escaped by going to Egypt. That Herod, who did that, that we read about, he was Herod the Great. He was the father of the Herod mentioned in Mark 6. Not the same person. 
The Herod in Mark 6 is sometimes called Herod Antipas to distinguish him from his father, Herod the Great. And the other thing we need to remember about Herod is that he was not Jewish. The Herodian family was actually from Idumea, which made them Edomites, descendants of Esau. The Jews, as you may remember, were descended from Jacob, but the Edomites, including Herod, were descended from Esau. Throughout the Old Testament, there's always been this enmity, hatred, antagonism between the Edomites and the people of God. And you can see that, for instance, in Psalm 137, what the Edomites did when Jerusalem was being destroyed. You can also see it in passages in the prophets like Malachi chapter 1, where God says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, even though Herod was not Jewish, he was still the king, or more properly, the ruler of the Jews in Galilee. The political power of the Herodian family was achieved during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the intertestamentary period. Through alliances with the Greeks and with the Romans, the Herodians were able to position themselves as rulers in Palestine. In verse 17, we discover that this Herod Antipas had sent out orders for the arrest and the imprisonment of John the Baptist. And then the reason follows. It's an ancient soap opera. A year or two before John's death, Herod Antipas was on a journey to Rome. Along the way, by the way, we know all this from not from the Bible, but from the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus tells us the, the, the broader background of what happens here. So along the way to Rome, Herod Antipas stopped in to visit his brother Philip, who lived along the coast of Palestine. Herod had left his wife at home. And as he visited with his brother, he ended up in bed with his brother's wife, Herodias. They fell in love with one another. They made an agreement that they were going to get married. She, Herodias, would divorce Philip. And he would divorce his wife. Herod would divorce his wife, whose name we, we don't know. Well, Herod continued on his trip to Rome, and while he was gone... His wife heard about the whole affair and she moved out. And she went back to her father, a Nabataean king. And later on, her father would wage war against Herod because of this mess. So, when Herod got back from Rome, the way was open for Herodias to get married to Herod. And what Herod did was wrong. And John the Baptist let him know in no uncertain terms. He told him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And when he said this, he was referring back to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 18, verse 16, the Lord said that it was not lawful for a man to have a sexual relationship with his brother's wife, implying that it was also wrong for a man to steal his brother's wife and to marry her. And the reason was that it would dishonor your brother. Now, someone might say, well, that was in Leviticus. And and that applied only to the Israelites. 
And Herod wasn't an Israelite, really. So John was out of line. Well, there are a couple of things we need to consider here. First of all, do we really want to say that the moral laws about incest in the Old Testament only applied to the people of Israel? Do we really want to say that those laws have no bearing on people who are not Jewish? Or that they have no bearing on us today? I think we instinctively realize or should realize that those moral laws are expanding on the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And while some of their cultural details may indeed only be for Israel, the general principles still apply to everyone, whether you're Jewish or not. It was wrong in Herod's day for any man to steal his brother's wife. And it remains wrong today for everybody. And even if those laws only apply to the Jews, say hypothetically, Herod still claimed to be their king. And it would be an outrage for the king of the Jews to think himself above the law of the Jews. The law that had been given by God. If he was truly the king of the Jews, then he should also live by the law of the Jews. And he should uphold it, not only with his judgments, but also with his lifestyle. And so John was right on the money when he came as a prophet, just like Elijah. And he laid down the law for Herod. But just like Elijah stirred up hatred in Jezebel, so also John stirred up the hatred of Herodias. She had it in for him. She wanted to kill him. You see, for some, the preaching of the law brings them to their knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. For Ahab, when Elijah laid down the law, he became broken. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and he fasted. God took notice and showed him mercy. He relented. But when Herodias hears John preaching the law and its demands, she responds with the desire to do violence to the messenger, to shut him up any way she possibly can. She doesn't want to hear about what she's done wrong, about what Herod's done wrong. She doesn't want to hear that their relationship is wrong, that her divorce was wrong, that his divorce was wrong. She's filled with hatred. But despite her hatred for John and his message, she wasn't able to do anything to him. Because even though she hated him, Herod, her husband, still had mixed feelings about him. For some reason, Herod was afraid of John. He believed that crossing a holy and righteous man was a bad idea. Perhaps there was some superstition in that. Maybe it was because of what Herod knew from the Old Testament. Maybe he did know that. We're guessing. We don't know one way or another. Whatever the case may be, Herod had these mixed feelings and Herod heard John. That's what the text says. Herod heard John. Now that's an important detail. 
Even though he had John put in chains and in prison, Herod still heard John. Now, either he went to prison to listen to him, or he had John brought from prison to him. And when he heard John, what he heard, it didn't clear anything up. It didn't produce any fruit of repentance, any meaningful change. Herod was as messed up and confused as ever. On the one hand, John had a point. And he was a clear, and he was an effective preacher. And that's evident from from elsewhere in the New Testament as well. That on the one hand. But then on the other hand, he had Herodias and the pull of his lust. These two things pulling on him left Herod in a quandary. And the strange thing is he was very content to sit in that quandary, to do nothing about it. We sang Psalm 131 a few moments ago, and in that psalm we have a a picture of quietness and peace and, and contentment. That's the very opposite of what's going on in Herod's life with all this tumultuous, all this being caught and pulled from both sides. However, eventually, events conspired to bring a resolution. Herod threw a birthday party for himself and for a number of military and public officials. The Herodian family had a long-standing reputation for debauched, drunken, pagan, immoral parties. And this one was going to be no exception. Somehow, the daughter of Herodias became involved with the party. Now, traditionally, the name of the daughter of Herodias is Salome. Again, we it's not mentioned in the Bible, but we know that from other sources. And for some reason or other, Salome, probably a teenager of marriageable age, so maybe 14, 15 years old, she comes and she dances. And given the context and the reaction that follows, this was probably not innocent, but something perverse. And Salome pleases Herod and brings him to make a thoughtless offer. He says that she can ask for whatever she wants. And then he strengthens it with an oath, offering something that he can't even give. Half of the kingdom. Because he was only a ruler, or the the technical term for it is a tetrarch, and he wasn't really a king, he couldn't give half of the kingdom if he really wanted to. Only Caesar could do that. But the offer is made nonetheless. You can have whatever you want. Salome, you just name it, and you'll get it. And seeing an opportunity, Salome goes out to Herodias, her mother, and seeks her advice. And her mother doesn't have to think very long. The answer is instantaneous. The head of John the Baptist. And from here on in, there's this rapid-fire story. Rat, tat, 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 tat. Everything takes place in a spin. The girl rushes back in and makes the request for John's head. And, and she adds something else. She adds that she wants it on a platter. Why on a platter? Why not in a box? Or, or something else? Why a platter? Well, think about it for a second. This is a feast. This is a birthday party. 
There are a lot of platters at the birthday party, platters full of food and drink, and they all look beautiful. The dishes at a feast, the platters are there to delight and to impress the guests. And this dish would be very delightful, very visually pleasing for Herodias. And this wicked, wicked woman assumes that it will be the same for Herod. Because of his mixed feelings about John, Herod is upset, distressed with this request. But he doesn't think that maybe he could say to Salome, listen, I promised you a gift, not a crime. Or he doesn't think that he could have said that he promised her something and not her mother. But his head was probably clouded with alcohol and he he felt the pressure of all the guests looking on. The fear of man got the better of him. And Herod saved his face, but he lost his soul. And the enmity between Jacob and Esau continued. It wouldn't be the last time that a ruler gives in to others so that an innocent man loses his life. It also wouldn't be the last time that a man's disciples come and take his body and give it a proper burial. In the last verse, we read about John's followers coming and and doing the right thing for his body, returning it to the earth, returning it in anticipation of the resurrection of the dead. Now, why does Mark include this whole story about John? More importantly, what is God saying to us? Well, this is all about what happens to God's prophets. And it speaks to us on three different levels. On the first one, all Christians are prophets of Christ, called to confess His name. And we can expect that the normal reaction is going to be antagonistic. Most people don't want to hear us speak about sin, the root problem of all human beings. Most people don't want to hear us speak about God's law and its demands. The average person doesn't want to hear about the curse on sin and sinners, about God's justice and His wrath. In fact, if you dare to speak about these things, you can expect people to become hostile, angry, perhaps even violent. And people don't want to hear us speak about the gospel as found in Scripture. Many don't want a gospel that says that by ourselves we're, we're hopeless, we're helpless, we're hellbound. Many don't want to hear that you have to rest and trust in Christ. That you have to believe that Christ has to do it all for us. That the only thing we can contribute to our salvation is our sin. Many want their ears tickled. They want a a feel-good-about-yourself gospel instead of the offensive gospel of the cross found in the Bible and described by Paul in the the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so, you should expect suffering and antagonism if you're a faithful prophet for Christ. That's the first level on which this passage speaks. The second has to do with what we do with God's prophets. 
specifically the messengers He appoints as ministers of the Gospel. How do we react, the people of God, when we hear the prophetic proclamation of God's Word? And if you've been following this series with me, you remember this question has been posed before by Mark's Gospel. This isn't the first time. For instance, in the, the parable of the sower, the point of the parable of the sower What kind of soil are you? Well, consider Herod's response and that of Herodias. As the word was sowed by John, did it meet with a positive response? Or did it find stony ground? Or perhaps ground that took it for a short while but was choked by the things of the world, choked by lust? What about us? What do we do with Christ's prophets and the word they bring? The third level brings us to verses 14 to 16. Back to the beginning of this text. And this has to do with Christ and His prophetic work. His prophetic office. If you look at these verses, you'll notice that there is confusion about who Christ is. You know, this is the central theme of the Gospel of Mark, that question, who is Jesus? Question of identity. And by this time, his identity is getting some definition. He's been preaching and teaching, doing miraculous things. It's becoming clear that Jesus is a prophet. But could he be Elijah? Could it be that Elijah has come down from heaven? Or could he be Jeremiah? Or one of the other prophets? Well, Herod has his own answer, and and his answer here in Mark is unambiguous. He thinks that John has come back to haunt him. But if you stop and you think about it for a second, that, that that's kind of odd. Because after all, Jesus and John were about the same age. How could John have come back from the dead in Jesus when Jesus was already known and he was already active in his ministry before John's death? Well, when Herod says this, he probably doesn't literally mean that John has come back from the dead. Most likely, this is just a vivid way of saying that there's, there's continuity in the prophetic style, in the, in the prophetic activity of Jesus and John. They're in the same line. This is sort of like Elijah's spirit being transferred to Elisha. Herod sees the spirit of John, spirit with a small s, spirit of John in Jesus. And for Herod, he was right in in one sense. He was right that both John and Jesus were fundamentally prophets. Both sent from God. Both working in very similar ways. But he missed everything else. When John preached, he preached the law. He exposed human sin and failure. But he also preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And he also said that there was one coming after him, someone greater, someone who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That someone greater had not only a prophetic message of judgment, but also a prophetic message of grace, of good news. He would be the forgiveness of sins. He would be the one to send the Holy Spirit. He would bring the gospel. But Herod misses all of this about Jesus Christ. He doesn't, when he hears about Jesus, he doesn't send out an invitation for Jesus to come to his palace to preach. His house has had enough of prophets. Jesus' prophetic ministry only frightened him. It didn't appeal to him. Later on, Jesus and Herod, this Herod, Herod Antipas, they would meet face to face. And when they finally met, Herod hoped that Jesus would do some miracle. He asked the Lord many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. Herod and his soldiers then mocked him, made him into a joke. They, they played dress up with him, humiliating him. The stage is being set here in Mark 6 for yet another confrontation between Jacob and Esau. The son of Esau, who did horrible, wicked things in Israel, who rejected God's promise just as his ancient father did, he would have to bear his own judgment. Loved ones, you see the issue here for us today, don't you? What do you make of Christ? the prophet. Who is he to you? Where do you fall in? With Jacob or with Esau? To be the true Israel, true spiritual sons of Jacob, we need to see Jesus as our only Lord, the one who prophetically proclaims God's law to us, both as a way to expose our sin and to guide and shape our thankfulness. We need to see Him as our only Savior, the one who prophetically proclaims the Gospel to us. The one who tells us that through Him we can be right with God. Through Christ, we're adopted as God's children and heirs. Through Christ, we have the promise of glorification and life eternal in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. You know, there's a tragedy in our text. And the tragedy is, is not what you might think. The tragedy is not the death of John the Baptist. The tragedy is in what happens with Herod. Herod sinned and his sin was exposed, laid open by the preaching of John the prophet. Jesus the prophet comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God And yet Herod remains distant, under the curse of sin. He remains under God's wrath. There's forgiveness for every sin in Jesus Christ. Loved ones, listen carefully. There is no sin too great that it cannot be forgiven through the blood of the Lamb of God. No sin. Herod could have been forgiven. 
Not only for his adultery and his incest, for stealing his brother's wife, for his divorce, but he could have been forgiven for for everything. The tragedy is that he remains in his sin, refusing to heed the prophetic preaching of John and then later the prophetic preaching of Christ. He's no Ahab. There's no sackcloth, no ashes, no meekness and humility with Herod. He has no sorrow over his sin, no repentance whatsoever, no faith. And that's a tragedy. However, it was a tragedy that fit in with the, in the plan for our salvation. God took that antagonism and opposition of Herod and, and He turned it for our benefit, using it like a hammer to crush the head of the serpent. And you see how that happens, right? Herod's heart gets hardened. He will not deliver Jesus from Pilate or from the Jews. Instead, he will humiliate him and send him on his way to the cross to suffer and die. But unlike John, Jesus' head will not end up on a platter at some feast. Instead, this prophet will triumph over sin and death. His death is different. Because His death is the death of death. Now the real tragedy would be that if any of us were to hear the prophetic preaching of Christ and then just let it go in one ear and out the other, the real tragedy would be for us to be offered all these riches, a true feast, and yet to turn up our noses at it, to go back like a dog to its vomit, casually back to living in sin, status quo, never finding the true joy offered by Christ. How truly tragic that would be. Loved ones, brothers and sisters, See your Savior again. Hear His Gospel. Embrace it in faith. Resting and trusting in Christ alone. Be convinced, without a doubt in your mind, that there is no sin, there is no weakness too great, that it cannot be forgiven through Christ. Know that looking to Christ in faith, all is forgiven. And you are received in grace. Trust His promises for you again today and rejoice in the Lord always. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the faithful prophet, for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank You for His faithful ministry on earth, both then and now. We thank You for His obedient life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection. He is truly our life and our hope. Lord God, we confess to You again our deep need for Him and for the message He brings us, our deep need for Your grace. We pray that we would continue to hear that message faithfully preached through Your messengers today. When we hear it, Help us with Your Spirit to accept it in faith. Make us like that little child of Psalm 131 
and give us rest for our souls. Father, we pray that You would also help all of us to be faithful prophets of our Lord Jesus. And we pray that You would give us opportunities to do that. Please help us when we encounter antagonism and hostility for the sake of the Gospel. Help us to remain firm and faithful and friendly. We pray that in all this You would strengthen us with Your Spirit. And please hear our prayer in the name of Christ, our chief prophet. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.